It's good to be back, and uh, we've been looking at this series uh, on Jesus, and we've hopefully over the summer the idea was to just take a more personal look at Jesus and, and, and spend time thinking about who he is and why he came and the anticipation of his coming and uh, some different ways of, of thinking about his relationship with us. And he came to make it personal and to sort of get into our lives in a very uncomfortable way, and we talked about that, how he came in the flesh to reveal God to us and get into our lives And we talked about his teaching, and we talked about how he joins us in our sorrow. And so we're continuing on that series, and we'll just sort of uh, stretch it out a little bit, maybe even into September, as there's just more and more to keep talking about, obviously, of Jesus. And today we're going to look at how he spoke, and the way that Jesus spoke, and that no one ever spoke the way Jesus spoke. Let me just pray before we begin. Father God, I just pray this morning that you would once again draw people to the beauty of your Son, that as we look into your Scripture, that it accomplishes its purpose of revealing your Son to us, that from Genesis to Revelation, there has been one purpose, to show us your love as it's expressed through Jesus, his coming, his teaching, his life, his actions, and ultimately his death and his glorious resurrection. And all of your scripture is to reveal how gorgeous and how beautiful and how amazing he is and should be to us. And so we pray, and I pray, that our eyes would be opened to uh, who Jesus is and how good you are and your love for us shown through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So words are interesting, and people who speak words for a living are interesting because they tend to words themselves tend to be divisive and uh, you can think of especially when you think of people who sort of use words for a living and sort of have to take a stand on words you think often maybe of politicians and so when you look at the U.S. and Canada both entering into federal elections uh, the candidates are sort of out in full force and the journalists are on red alert for sound bites and the debates are all scheduled and all televised and everybody, the nations, are looking at and hanging on the words of these very important people. And they're honing in with incredible precision on every turn of phrase. Every single word that is being spoken by every candidate is being analyzed as to what it means and where they stand on it and then how that would affect the outcome of the election or whatever. And we listen to these people speak and we hear their words, whether it's, you know, Justin Trudeau is one of these people that that is speaking and and every word that he said is, is being picked apart and analyzed and people are divided on Justin Trudeau, whether he's ready or not ready, and whether he smokes weed or doesn't smoke weed or approves of it or whatever it is. Like everything he says is being analyzed and being picked apart. Or maybe it's Stephen Harper, just under the microscope, and it's very divisive. The thing, the who he is and the things he says and the way he governs can be very divisive. People are either for him or against him, and we get very polarized views. Or if you want a little more entertainment, you could go across the border and think of Donald Trump. You want to talk about a guy whose words are being well you don't even have to you don't even have to get a microscope out to know where Donald stands on things I mean he'll just tell you but but the but the words that people say and who they are can be divisive they are divisive the reality is when people speak uh, on, a, on a topic, you're either for them or against them. You, uh, in a business meeting, you're either speaking for the motion or against the motion. You're uh, either on the defense or you're on the prosecution. Uh, you're either, uh, you're, when you're voting in a, in a trial, it's either guilty or not guilty. There's, there's no middle ground. I mean, the reality is you either have, you have to land somewhere 
when, when, when people and these situations arise and they speak these words. And there's another guy who spoke, another man who spoke, and he wasn't a politician and he wasn't a business multimillionaire and he was not a news journalist or a media commentator. He was a poor man from the backcountry region of Galilee. And he walked on these dusty roads and he spoke, but his words, Jesus' words, were no less divisive. His words and their clarity and their authenticity and their power and the audacious claims that he made and their truth cut, they didn't cut along political lines and they didn't cut along ethnic lines or national lines or even across social class lines. The words of Jesus cut right through the human heart and left the world with no choice but to choose. Jesus came to speak the words of God and no one ever spoke the way this man spoke. And Jesus by his plan and by the nature of who he claimed to be and who he was and how he spoke, left no middle ground. You were either for him or against them. And the sort of modern notions of people sort of thinking Jesus was a nice guy or a good teacher or a wise man that you could follow and just sort of be a fan of but not a follower, that notion would be completely foreign to the contemporaries of Jesus. In Israel, in Palestine... In the Roman Empire, Jesus could not just be a nice guy and a wise teacher because of the things he said and the way he spoke. Who he was and how he spoke forced people into a division. And our text today, we look at John 7, uh, 40 to 52. If you want to turn there, I'll also have it up on the screen. But the context here is Jesus is now speaking and preaching openly. Uh, he had not wanted to go up to the feast in Jerusalem, even though his brothers very sarcastically encouraged him to go out there and be exposed. So I think they were hoping he would get arrested because they didn't believe in him. But he did follow them, and he went up in secret and started preaching in Jerusalem at the feast. And so there's millions of people there, literally, and he's preaching in Jerusalem about who he is and what he has come to accomplish. And that's where we pick up in John 7, 40 to 52, is after he has been preaching for a while and aggravating uh, the Pharisees and others. It says, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. And still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And thus the people were divided because of Jesus. And some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, one of the Pharisees' own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now why are the words, the speaking of Jesus, so offensive to some and so compelling to others that they cause such clear-cut dividing? 
And you see in the text here, there's a division here. There's a dividing that is caused by his words, and it's described twice. In verses 40 to 44, the crowd kind of splits into three groups. It says the crowd is divided because of Jesus. And then in verse 47 and following, the Pharisees give three different reasons to discredit anyone who might feel the way the people and the guards do about the words of Jesus. And so first we look at the division. First of all, in those early verses, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. He's the prophet. And in your translation, they might have put a capital P on prophet there, responding to the prophet who is promised who will rise up like Moses. These people actually do know their law and they do know their scripture. In Deuteronomy 18.8, among other places, God promises that he will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything that I command him. And so some people were saying, this is the promised prophet. God said he would raise up a prophet like Moses and he would put his words into his mouth and he would speak. And that's what we're hearing. We're hearing Jesus speak like no one has ever spoke before. This must be the prophet that was promised. But then others said, there's another group that said, this is the Messiah. And others said, this is Christ, the Messiah. And they know the scripture. They they know the Messiah is anticipated. This isn't just the prophet. This is the king who will rule forever in the line of David. This is the seed of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent, the child of Abraham in the line of Judah, a son of David. And so some of the people see Jesus for who he might really be, that he really is the Messiah. And they've understood and, and their eyes have been opened to who he is. And then other people think he's just a mistake. There's another part of the crowd that just says, no, can't be the Messiah because isn't the Messiah supposed to come from Bethlehem in the line of David? And, and this guy's from Nazareth. He's from Galilee. And so it can't, it can't be the Messiah. You've made a mistake and, and don't blow this out of proportion. Uh, this, this isn't really God. This isn't really the Messiah, the Christ that we're expecting. And, and they don't realize that Jesus actually is from Bethlehem, right? Obviously this crowd hasn't bothered to find out the real story of who Jesus is and where he came from because he actually was born in Bethlehem, right? We know that, and he is from the line of David. And in fact, they're overlooking one of the key prophecies of Jesus in Isaiah 9.1, which it's true that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and he'll be from Bethlehem from the line of David, but Isaiah says in 9.1, he says, In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali. Excuse me, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. And then, as you know, Isaiah goes on to reveal those great verses that that we know about Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah actually showed them that Galilee is going to be honored because God is going to bring the Messiah actually from Galilee. And so they're missing who Jesus is, and they just think it's a mistake. And so the people were divided because of Jesus. And some wanted to seize him, but in the end, no one touched him. And so there is this division then. And there are divisions today. This is the reality. Whenever you speak about Jesus, there will be a division. Even as I'm up here speaking now about Jesus, there's a division in people's hearts. If they listen to the podcast or they see our Facebook page and they go and they listen to us preaching the word and and they hear about Jesus or you talk about Jesus at work or you talk about Jesus with your family, you know what I'm talking about. There is a division that takes place over Jesus, a far greater division than over Stephen Harper or Donald Trump. As divisive as those personalities might be, you bring up Jesus in your families and there will be a division. 
right? You understand what I'm saying? You cannot speak about Jesus and you can't speak the word of Jesus without there being a division in your workplace, in your culture, in your family, no matter what. Some people will engage you in a discussion on who Jesus might be. They might speculate with you about religion, right? They might, they might contemplate, well, maybe he's a prophet or maybe he's a great person or maybe he's a great teacher and, and they'll engage you in that conversation of speculation on Jesus. And then other people will just reject you outright. They will just say, it's a mistake. Uh, this whole God thing is nonsense. Uh, whatever you think Jesus is, you're wrong because he's not that. And here's why I think so. And then others will be convinced. They will agree with you that he is the Messiah and that he is the Christ. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, this is not a foreign problem to the Apostle Paul as he spoke, he said that his preaching had this effect on people. He said it was to the one we are an aroma that brings death, and to the other an aroma that brings life. And so when I'm up here or anyone is talking about Jesus and speaking the words of Jesus, for some people it is a fragrance of death to them. They want nothing to do with it, and it ultimately will be their death as they reject Jesus. But then to others, it's the aroma that brings life. And so as you're sitting here, and I'm talking about Jesus, and I'm speaking the words of Jesus, you sort of get a sense of what what aroma do you get? Is Jesus an aroma of life to you, or an aroma of death? And so even today, Jesus and the words of Jesus divide us, and we make a decision in our hearts, as, as Mark prayed. We make a decision, a choice in our hearts of what we're going to do with Jesus and his words. Jesus said himself in Matthew 10, 34, he said, I come with a sword and I will set even sons against fathers and daughters against mothers. Jesus knew he would be divisive. He knew eventually people would have to make a choice one way or the other. And so that's the division of the people. There's sort of those three groups, some confused about who he is, some not sure, maybe he's a nice guy, a prophet or something, others that recognized him as the Messiah, and then others attacking the claim that he's a Messiah and trying to dismiss it and dismiss him. But then there's another group that's divided from Jesus, and it's the Pharisees. And and John goes on, and he's going to allow the Pharisees to speak and have their opinion in this matter as well. And just prior to our text here, in verse 32, the Pharisees had discovered that Jesus had come up secretly to Jerusalem. He started to preach. They knew he was about, and they sent out the temple guards to go and arrest him. And that's why the guards were there. They were there supposed to arrest Jesus and bring him to the Pharisees because they knew the things that he was teaching and saying. And so as Jesus is speaking at this place in the crowd, you can imagine it, there's thousands of people there, and he's preaching, and the guards are trying to make their way through the crowd to him. And so they're hearing him teach as they're trying to get to him, and they're hearing what other people are saying about him. And so as they are coming to get him, he's still talking, and they are caught up in this division of the people that some wanted to arrest him, and some wanted to seize him, and some didn't. And in the end, Jesus gets away, and they don't get their hands on him. And so the guards go back, and they report to the Pharisees who sent them. And the Pharisees ask, why didn't you bring Jesus? And their answer is the fulcrum of what this division turns on, of what divides people. And their response is in verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Now this is really interesting. It's interesting, why would they answer like that? The Bible's so amazing to read, not just for what it says, but sometimes just for what it doesn't say, (laughs) or what it says that is very odd of what you would expect it to say. So when you're reading that, you think, why would the guards come back and say to their bosses, why didn't you arrest him? Well, nobody ever spoke as this man spoke. It's like, well, they could have said, hey, it's the Feast of Booths out there. The city is like crazy. It's volatile. There's there's street corner preachers everywhere. And if we start arresting them, 
then we could start a riot or something. I mean, isn't that sound like a better excuse if you're coming back empty-handed as a guard? You know, we just felt in the situation, we assessed the situation and we felt it was better that we just leave them alone. There's a better time we can get them. You know, or they even could have just made an excuse. It's like, it's really crowded. There's thousands of people. We, we tried so hard. We put up this, you know, we put a cordon around them and we were closing in on them, but somehow we just slipped away in the crowd. Could have just done that. But instead they come back and very honestly say, yeah, nobody ever spoke like this guy did. We, we've never heard anyone teach the way he teaches. And so we let him go, basically, is what we did. Like it's amazing that that's their answer. But that's what John records. And he's letting the Pharisees now speak in order to allow the Pharisees, I think, to incriminate themselves. The saying goes, it's better to remain silent and let people think you are a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. And the Pharisees, I think John lets the Pharisees open their mouth here and prove where they stand on Jesus. So in response to the, guard, first, the guards, they first say, you mean he has deceived you also? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. And so the first suggestion is that anybody who would be stupid enough to believe these teachings or follow this man for Jesus, who he is, they must be deceived. That's their first answer. They're, they're deceived. They're fools. They're, they're, they're tricked. But I think as you read this, you realize the irony of who, who's actually deceived here. It's the Pharisees who are deceived. They're the ones putting their foot in their mouth here. But then they go on to say, they say, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. So they say the people of Israel don't know the law, but clearly they do from what they were saying. Many of them did know. They were expecting the prophet and they were expecting the Messiah. And they're cursed. I mean, this is crazy, right? So clearly they have to be cursed in order to be swayed by the person and the teaching of Jesus, right? Because if they believe something different than me, then clearly they're cursed, Right? This is what it's like. It's, like. it's like a pastor getting up and saying, if you don't believe what I'm saying, then you're cursed. You know, you're clearly either deceived or cursed. This is what the Pharisees are saying. But who's really cursed? And then finally, Nicodemus speaks, who's one of the Pharisees, and as you know, met with Jesus in John chapter 3. He meets with Jesus privately because he's compelled by the teaching of Jesus. And he meets with Jesus to learn more about him and how he speaks and he speaks up in his defense, and Nicodemus reminds the other Pharisees that the law, which supposedly they know, actually allows a man to speak and be heard before he is being condemned. But they attack Nicodemus, and their third reason why they think anybody could possibly believe in Jesus is that they're biased. He says, are you from Galilee too? Like, are you one of his friends? Are you one of his clansmen? Are you, are you one of these, you know, hick country boys from Galilee? Is that why you're sticking up for him? Because if you look into it, you'll find that a prophet doesn't come out of Galilee. And so, so you're either deceived, cursed, or biased. That's the only reasons the Pharisees can come up with as to why you might listen to Jesus or defend him. And so the Pharisees say these things and they apply them to other people when in fact all those things apply to them, not to believers. And all of this still hinges on that amazing statement of the guards that no one has ever spoken as this man does. And so it begs the question, how did Jesus speak? And so very quickly, with a little bit of time remaining here, we want to look into how was it, what was it about the words of Jesus? How was it that he was speaking that had this effect? That this would be the excuse of the guards. That this would be the divisive nature of Jesus. That this would be the way that people responded to him. How was he speaking? Well, we could look at, and I'm not going to today, we could look at his wisdom. 
the Sermon on the Mount and the way that he spoke of the law and the things that he said that, that were simply wise beyond people's understanding. Or we could talk about his clarity, his explanation of the, wa- of the law, his correction of the Pharisees when they misunderstood what the law meant and what the law really meant, and uh, his clarification of, of how the law was to instruct us uh, to an understanding of God and who he was. We could talk about his clarity. We could talk about his, the penetration of his words. And we talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago about the woman at the well and how she's there just drawing water and this man comes up for a drink and all of a sudden he's talking to her about her four past husbands and relationships and the man she's living with now. And he's just penetrating right to the heart of her problems and her sorrow and her need. And so he penetrates, or you could talk about the rich young ruler who comes and says he's keeping the law. You know, what must I do more? And he penetrates immediately with a single sentence. Oh, just sell everything that you have and follow me. And he goes right to the heart with his teaching of the issue with that rich young ruler, the penetration of his words. Or you could talk about the power of his words, his wisdom, his clarity, his penetration, the power. He's casting out demons. Satan cannot refuse the words of Jesus. He's casting demons out of people. He's healing the sick. He's calling a fish up out of the water with a coin in its mouth. You know, he's casting nets on one side of the boat and, and just he speaks and things happen because of the power of Jesus' words. And so you could talk about that and you would take his wisdom and his clarity and his penetration and his power and it would be totally normal for people to say, nobody talks like this guy talks. We've never seen this before. He cures leprosy. We have not seen that in the history of Israel, the curing of leprosy. But it's not just those things. Even more critically, it's what Jesus says about himself. And so he claims things that no one else can possibly claim that leaves you no wiggle room to decide what you believe about Jesus. First of all, he claims to be God. He says, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you about Judas' betrayal before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, or literally that I am. I tell you the future, he says, to show you that I am the incarnation. I am God. I'm the God of the Old Testament who identifies himself in Exodus as I am. He says, tell them I am sent you. Or as he says in late, earlier, later in John, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus claims to be God. No one speaks like that. That he is God in the flesh. He claims to exist before he was born. He says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so he claims not only to have existed before he was born, but that he existed as I am, as God. He claims to be the only way to God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the way, the truth, the life, the light. And if we don't believe in him, he says, we remain in darkness forever. He comes and says, you can only get to the Father through me. I'm the only way. He claims to be the bread and the water that impart eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He makes these 
audacious claims. He's God. He existed before he was born. He's the only way to God. He's the bread and water of life. He says he has the authority to forgive sin. The, Jesus, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus for the way that he is teaching, and they say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus puts on a demonstration, not only of his power, but authority in healing the paralytic man and saying, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Because he said, what's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this man, rise and walk? So there's, like, there's no wiggle room here. Jesus is not fooling around about what he's claiming to do. And so people who say, oh, Jesus never said that or Jesus never claimed those things or those people are putting words in his mouth. That's, that's a totally modern phenomenon, okay? Nobody in Jesus' time had any doubt about what he was saying. The Pharisees wanted to kill him for a very good reason because he was saying he was God. He was the only way to God. He existed before he was born. He was the I am. He had the authority to forgive sin. And he claims to be the one who raises people from the dead at the end of history. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And there's so many more we could go to of the words of Jesus that make you stop and think, if you just go through this list, you're right there with the guards. You're saying, nobody ever spoke the way this guy spoke. And the people were divided. And the Pharisees hated him. And they did not know what to do with Jesus because they left them nowhere to stand with the things he said. And so what does this mean for us that Jesus spoke like this? Well, the sort of classic explanation of it is, comes from, if you grew up in the 20th century, from C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he addressed this, uh, C.S. Lewis addressed this by the classic uh, liar, lunatic, or lord, was the way he put it. If Jesus speaks this way, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's lord. And so you sort of have to confront the reality of what Jesus said, but I understand looking at that picture, you realize C.S. Lewis is 20th century and now it's 21st century and he just looks old, right? So, you know, and maybe some of you haven't heard the Lion and the Lunatic and Lord series. I mean, you know it from C.S. Lewis and you know what it means, but you haven't heard it actually played out in reality. And so I'm going to go to a more modern theologian, Bono. And, uh, and Bono, I think, understands exactly what C.S. Lewis is talking about. Bear with me as... As you just listen to the words of Bono here, in, in 2004, there was a, a terrorist bombing in Madrid. Some of you may remember. And a few days after that bombing, uh, Bono was uh, interviewed by a French journalist, Mika Assayas. And as you might expect, after a terrorist bombing, uh, religion was suggested by this French journalist as the reason for terrorism, that, that it's these religious fanatics that are, that are causing all this problem now and through history. But instead of taking the bait of the interviewer, Bono turns the conversation away from Islam and violence to Christianity and the themes of grace. And his reply is recorded in a book that this guy wrote in conversation with Bono uh, that you could look up. But this, this email, where, where we get it today, is this email went around the Internet. It's been going around for years because this excerpt was taken from Bono and it got sort of forwarded around the way emails do on the Internet. And, and when Bono said... Uh, it's, you could Google it. You could look it up. It's been around. When Bono said, it's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven, the journalist replied to him, and he said, such great hope is wonderful, even though it is close to lunacy in my view. 
Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? This is the French journalist who said this. Talk about teeing it up. Bono's answer, I think, is remarkable, especially for him to say, with the audience and the attention that he has. Bono replies to the journalist, No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had lots to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, No, I am not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And the people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We had John the Baptist leading locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. He goes on, Jesus goes on. No, no, I know you are expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. And at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what are you left with? Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me... That's far-fetched. That was his answer to the journalist. So Bono gets it. I'm sure he must have read C.S. Lewis. He was also an Irishman. And so Bono, in response to this journalist, spells it out for him. No, this is not far-fetched. This is who Jesus is. It's what he said. And you either take him at his word or you write him off. No one ever spoke the way Jesus spoke with the credibility, with the power, with the authority, and the truth. It's remarkable, it's verifiable, it's undeniable. And Bono knows it. He's applying liar, lunatic, and Lord into real life. And he knows what it means. I don't know if it it saves him. But here's the application. This is what we have to leave here today knowing. It's not enough to just be compelled by this argument of this sermon. It's not enough to say, I finally heard a good argument for why Jesus is God, and I believe he is, because that argument makes so much sense, and and I'm convinced. Bono clearly is convinced as well, and I am too. But I don't know, me personally, I don't know if Bono is saved by his conviction, because Jesus didn't come to provide a good argument for who he is. Jesus didn't come to prove that there was an alternative to the world of unbelief. He came to rescue us from it. He came that we follow him. If you are to be saved, if you are to enjoy this life-transforming, eternal, life-securing reality of salvation by Jesus, you actually have to respond to what he is speaking about himself. You have to follow him, not just concede to the argument. Because it can be as good an argument as it is, and you can be convinced by the argument, but it's not about being convinced by the argument. It's about choosing to follow the person and the words of Jesus. And so this is what I present to you. This is what I hope for you, that you would do more than just walk away feeling compelled by a good presentation of the truth of who Jesus is. 
Not that my words would transform you, but that you would take the next step and let Jesus' words transform you. Because only his words have life. And his words are this. He says, I am God, and you have sinned, and you have doubted, and you have hated, and you have looked at your shoes, and you have rejected me your whole life. But I love you, and I want you. And so hear my words, and come to me, and follow me, and love me, and I will become beautiful to you. Reject your sin and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Those are the words that divide. And you choose where you fall. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, do that, people of Israel. He's saying, do that, tax collectors and sinners. Do that, scribes and Pharisees. Do that, people of Halliburton. Choose to follow me. Take me for what I say, because I don't give you room to wiggle. Listen to my words and let them be powerful to you. I'm speaking them across time from the words of the Bible that I wrote and preserved for you. And I came to you so that you could know me and hear me and follow me. Jesus' words, nobody spoke like this. His words are deliberately intended to divide right down the center of the human heart. And you have to decide where you stand with Jesus. He leaves us no middle ground. Be a disciple Be a follower, be the ones who stay with Jesus, or be the ones who reject him. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray this morning that we would look with new eyes upon the person of Jesus and his words, that we would know where we stand with him. And Father, I mean, it's there for us. The convincing argument is there. Jesus left us no room to wiggle. And so we can be convinced by the argument, but I know that that's not enough. I thank you that there's a convincing argument. But I know then that we have to actually follow. Lots of people are convinced, but they still don't follow. And so, Lord, that takes your Holy Spirit. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in people's hearts, that they would see Jesus again, maybe for the 500th time for how beautiful he is, but I pray especially for people who are seeing Jesus for the first time for how beautiful he is. That he spoke like no one else, that he taught like no one else, that he made claims about himself that no one else could make, that he came to put us in a place where we had to make a decision. And so, Lord, I pray that decision would be made, start being made even this morning. Father God, you are so good that you would leave us this choice and yet you would draw us by your word and draw us by your love. And so if there are any here this morning, Lord, that are feeling drawn, they are not here by accident. They are here because you wanted them here this morning. This sermon is not by accident. It's the sermon you wanted preached. And if their hearts are feeling drawn, that is not a coincidence. It's because you're drawing them. And so, Lord, I pray that they would be drawn and that they would make a decision to follow you. Not just be convinced, but to follow you. To turn away from their sin, to give up the fight, to stop rebelling, and just follow you. And let you love them. Father God, I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.